Hi, my name is Kellyanne Light McGrory. I'm one of the clinical assistant professors at the University of Iowa in uh, both the cardiology and the palliative medicine program. I'm going to talk to you guys today about living and dying with both heart failure and chronic lung disease and how palliative care can help with that process. To begin with, I just have a disclosure statement. Uh, I don't have any financial interests or relationships to disclose. So the objectives of the lecture today are basically to review some of the basic principles of palliative care and how it applies to the patient uh, who has heart failure or who has chronic lung disease. I'd like to also talk to you about uh, some of the types of palliative interventions at the various stages or classes of heart failure or chronic lung disease, and then discuss goals of care conversations in this patient population, including barriers and techniques that you can apply to that process. I'd like to start with a couple of cases. My first case, and as we're going through these cases, I'd like you to think about whether or not you would get palliative care involved in the care of this particular patient. We have a 58-year-old woman. She was diagnosed with an ischemic cardiomyopathy. She has a left ventricular ejection fraction of about 28%. Uh, in place, she has already a biventricular defibrillator and pacer. A, she has already recently been stented with bare metal stents to uh, her left main, her LED, and her circumflex. She's chronic kidney disease and diabetes. Uh, she has classed three symptoms with respect to her heart failure. She's hospitalized about every six to eight weeks for her symptoms. She used to go to the casino about once or twice a week, and now uh, she can only go about every four to six weeks and is a lot more limited in what she can do while she's there. She lives at home with her significant other. Her daughter lives nearby. And currently, she's being considered for destination therapy with a left ventricular assist device. Our next patient is a 74-year-old woman who's been followed for the last six years for management of dyspnea secondary to emphysema. She was an active and passive smoker for well over 30 years. She's a thin woman, appears her stated age. She's actively purse-lip breathing and has sternocleidomastoid contractions. Her lung function tests are consistent with severe airflow obstruction, air trapping, and a marked decrease in her diffusing capacity. She lives independently in a retirement community with supplemental home oxygen of four liters per minute. Our third case is a 23-year-old woman, college student, who was admitted to the university with viral illness. Currently, she is in cardiogenic shock in the surgical ICU. She's on ECMO, which is extracorporeal mechanical support, allowing for oxygenation, and in her case, uh, also uh, support for her heart function. And uh, she also has in biventricular mechanical assist devices uh, with a diagnosis now of viral myocarditis. She has no other medical history. She has a left ventricular ejection fraction of 6%. She's currently being evaluated for a bridge to transplant ventricular assist device and a heart transplant. Our fourth patient is a 69-year-old gentleman admitted to the university with wheezing, dyspnea on exertion, and cough, productive of thin white phlegm. He smoked for about 50 years, lives with his wife, and is retired. Uh, he's hypertensive, hyperlipidemic, and with this admission to the emergency department, has a new diagnosis of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease with evidence on his chest x-ray of hyperinflated lungs, a flattened diaphragm, uh, and no evidence of any infiltrates. He was initiated at that point on nebulizers and corticosteroids. And for our last case, I have a 75-year-old woman with a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. Her ejection fraction is approximately 28%. She has evidence of left bundle branch block on her 12-lead EKG. She has a New York Heart Association function class three symptoms, and she's being considered uh, for admission for an upgrade to a biventricular pacer ICD based on her New York Heart Association functional class, her ejection fraction, as well as her ECG with uh, a very wide QRS. So these are a few patients um, that are fairly common to my practice as a cardiologist and that I've seen in the capacity of being an internal medicine physician. And my question as we go through this talk is as you think about these patients, who would you actually consider for a palliative care consult? So let's begin by understanding palliative care and hospice and what that actually means. So the actual definition of palliative care really comes down to the goal of what palliative care is. It's to prevent and relieve suffering, to support the best possible quality of life for patients and their families, regardless of which stage of disease they are or what other therapies they may need. 
is really a philosophy of care. It's organized and highly structured to deliver that care. It takes a traditional disease model, medical treatments, and enhances quality of life, tries to optimize function, helping people with decision-making and providing them opportunities for personal growth. Uh, just by recognizing what the goals of palliative care on, you realize that we can help to provide relief from pain and other distressing symptoms. It recognizes both life and death as a normal process. We try not to necessarily hasten or postpone death. What we try to do is help bring patients through that process, integrate psychosocial, uh, spiritual aspects of patient care, provide a support system to help patients live as actively as possible until their death, offer a support system to help family cope with patient illness and with their own bereavement uh, as a patient progresses through their disease and ultimately dies of it. It uses a team approach to address the needs of patients and their families, including bereavement counseling. For many people, this includes uh, disciplines such as our chaplaincy, social workers, it can include music therapists, nursing support, uh, and other uh, disciplines. The goal is really to help enhance quality of life. Uh, it also may have a positive influence on the course of some illnesses, as we'll see later as we look at some of the data. I think the most important take-home point from what palliative care is, is that it's applicable early in the course of an illness, in conjunction with therapies that are intended to prolong life, such as chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and can include those investigations needed to better understand and manage distressing clinical complications. So it is something that can be incorporated early on in a disease process, especially a disease that is chronic and has quite a bit of symptoms. I think that really becomes the take-home message for me is that we really need to start involving palliative care earlier on so that our patients can get uh, comprehensive total care. Hospice, which is what most people tend to be more familiar with, falls under the auspices of palliative medicine. The focus of hospice actually relies on the belief that each of us has the right to die pain-free and with dignity and that our loved ones will get the necessary support to allow us to do those things. It focuses on caring, not curing, and in most cases, the care is intended to be provided in a patient's home. Uh, it can be delivered in hospice centers, hospitals, nursing homes, and other long-term care facilities, so there are various ways to deliver this kind of care. Um, they're available to patients of any age, religion, race, or illness. It is generally covered under Medicare, Medicaid, most private insurance plans, and HMOs, and other managed care organizations. Uh, so, again, a subset of palliative care that is focused a bit more on uh, the active dying process and really focused on helping people die a pain-free and dignified death. So who's involved in a palliative care team? Well, I think to take home from this is that the patient and the family are truly at the center of this care team. It is through the interaction with the patient and family and with each other that we can provide the best care. The interdisciplinary team includes, as I said before, volunteers, nurses, physicians, spiritual counselors, therapists, home health aides, bereavement counselors, social workers, uh, under therapists that it can include occupational therapy, physical therapy, music therapy, massage therapy, uh, there are a lot of different ways to deliver care in this patient population. And the idea is also, too, to try to provide a very uh, tailored and specialized approach for each individual patient and their care needs. So let's look a little bit at utilization of hospice in 2012. Uh, what we realize is that there are approximately 2.5 U.S. deaths annually, and of those, only 1 million of those occur within hospice. So less than 50% of patients are dying uh, in hospice. Uh, what are the primary diagnoses of people who are admitted to hospice? Not surprising, the uh, primary diagnosis for most people as a single diagnosis is cancer. But when you look at the number of people admitted with cancer versus non-cancer diagnoses, we have an increasing number of people who are admitted with non-cancer diagnoses and are actually making up the majority of admissions at this point. What you can see from the data is that in 2009, patients with cancer represented 40% of the admissions into hospice, whereas the following year it had already decreased down to about 36%. What's on the rise is admissions for heart disease. Uh, lung disease uh, remains relatively low at only 8%, and that held steady for uh, several years. 
while it represents a disease with a great deal of symptom burden, it has not been embraced as much as of yet. So how do you decide that somebody is in need of palliative care? I like to think of it from several perspectives. What does their prognosis look like? What type of symptoms do they have? Is there a significant burden of symptoms where we can make a significant impact? Uh, the other place that I like to look at is, is there an issue with problems with communication? Very often in our healthcare system, care has become somewhat fractionated and Often the palliative care physician or hospice physician can be the unifying practitioner and really be a uh, very good coordinator of care for patients as they go through a very complex illness and as they grow closer to death. So initially the model of uh, delivery of health care uh, initially kept curative care and palliative care on two separate tracks. Uh, initially you'd have curative care where the focus was on uh, trying to truly change the course of the illness, trying to cure, trying to slow down progress, and then when all else had failed, moving over to palliative care and then progressing to death. Perhaps a better concept, which can be applied to a multitude of different diagnoses, is recognizing that early on you have disease-modifying and potentially curative treatments. And for most people, as they are initially diagnosed with their disease, that is where the focus tends to be. But over time, gradually, there may be less and less of a focus on the potentially curative aspect and more of a focus on supportive and palliative care. But what's most important is that early on, you can see down in this area, even when you're really focusing primarily on curative treatments, there is also some supportive therapy going on. There's ways of addressing these types of issues early on, so even when you're at the early stages of a disease. And then the other piece that is missing in the old concept is what happens after death. In our old concept, there's not really focus on what happens to patients' families afterwards, whereas in sort of a better and newer uh, concept of healthcare delivery, we also include bereavement care afterwards to help support a family through that process. So it is truly total care, both of the patient, the family, throughout the disease process. So let's start with heart failure and talk a little bit about the current state of heart failure. So there are nearly 6 million patients in the United States living with heart failure. Approximately 1% will reach advanced stage heart failure and die of progressive pump failure. The numbers of these patients are rising with the aging of the population. And annually, between direct and indirect costs, heart failure care has exceeded approximately $34 billion in the year 2010. So a major problem, many people affected in a huge cost to our healthcare system. From the time of initial heart failure diagnosis, the annual mortality from heart failure is about 20%, five-year mortality of 50%. We know that after the patient is initially admitted for their first heart failure admission, the rehospitalization rate ranges from 20 to 59% annually. Long-term survival with heart failure can be worse than for men with bowel cancer and women with breast cancer. In 2004, the number of heart failure deaths exceeded deaths due to lung cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, and HIV and AIDS combined. So a huge public health problem. What are some of the treatments that are currently available for heart failure? Well, aggressive medical management with neurohormonal modulation, with diuretics. So this includes things such as ACE inhibitors, uh, beta blockers, aldosterone antagonists, uh, digoxin, as well as our various diuretic regimens. There are different device therapies that are applicable to different patients. This includes things like defibrillators, uh, cardiac resynchronization therapy with pacing, uh, percutaneous support devices, uh, such as an intraoperative balloon pump. Uh, temporary ventricular assist devices. These can be things such as ventricular assist devices that are placed through the chest wall uh, with externalized drive lines where the pumps are actually outside of the body. These can also include some other type of percutaneous support de uh, devices. And then we have permanent ventricular assist devices, and by this we're talking about left ventricular assist devices such as the HeartMate 2, which is the most common pump that's implanted in the United States, and the total artificial heart, which is a biventricular pump. Other options include things such as heart transplantation, and I would argue that along the line of advanced therapies, palliative care and hospice uh, should be considered along the spectrum of disease as something that needs to be incorporated early and frequently.
So what are some of our societies say about uh, the integration of palliative care and heart failure? In the ACC AHA 2009 Heart Failure Guidelines, palliative care is considered a 1C recommendation. It's been identified as well by the Europe European Society of Cardiology and their guidelines from 2008. The Canadian Cardiovascular Society of Heart Failure Management Guidelines in 2011 strongly recommended palliative care despite there not being a tremendous amount of evidence. Uh, the Heart Failure Society uh, in 2010 recommended uh, this as part of the treatment of heart failure with level C evidence. One of the most important interactions of multiple societies includes uh, the expert consensus statement uh, of the management of patients with implantable electronic devices at the end of life, as well as different competence statements from the ACC, AHA, Heart Failure, and uh, Transplantation Society on how to manage patients with advanced heart failure and with cardiac transplant, as well as European Heart Rhythm Society's consensus statement as well. So all of our groups are saying that this is an important thing for us to do, but there's not a lot of good advice on how to get this done in our patients. Let's just switch over a little bit to the problem of chronic lung disease. What we know is that chronic obstructive uh, pulmonary disease is the fourth leading cause of mortality in the United States and the twelfth leading cause of disability worldwide. By the year 2020, it will move up to third and fifth respectively. So again, a major, major healthcare problem. About half of patients discharged after a COPD admission will die within two years. An exacerbation of COPD in patients with a PACO2 of 50 millimeters of mercury or more on admission is associated with an in-hospital mortality of 11% and a one-year mortality of 43%. I think the thing that strikes me the most is that most of patients who survive a hospitalization for COPD are dysmic for the rest of their lives. I think that this often gets underplayed and under-recognized in terms of uh, symptom management and a place where we can have a significant impact on the quality of people's lives. So what are some of the markers of poor prognosis in patients with chronic lung disease? Uh, severity of disease is an important uh, contributor to poor prognosis. Poor nutritional status, which uh, applies both for chronic lung disease as well as congestive heart failure. Uh, patients who have comorbid heart disease, depression, impaired quality of life, and patients who are older. What are some of the burdens of the disease that patients face who have chronic lung disease? Well, disabling physical symptoms, especially things such as breathlessness or dyspnea, psychological distress, social, social isolation, uh, which often comes because people are unable to leave their homes due to the need for oxygen, due to difficulty ambulating and being able to get around comfortably. And then comorbid conditions compound all of these issues. So what some of the data that we have on using hospice uh, in different patient populations. When you compare the survival between hospice and non-hospice heart failure patients, uh, this, is, this is an interesting piece of data that came out of a retrospective uh, cohort study from uh, Medicare looking at the survival of patients uh, with different terminal illnesses. And what you can see is that patients who uh, do not receive hospice, which is in the uh, sort of dark purple blue line down here, die at a much higher rate than their cohort who actually have hospice care. So patients uh, live longer often when they are uh, enrolled in hospice. When we look at some of the cost that's, uh, that's incurred by patients, uh, at the end of their lives. This slide goes into what the Medicare costs and survival are both with and without hospice. So when you look at congestive heart failure, uh, which is listed up here in chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, we see a cohort of patients who have received hospice and those who have not received hospice. The median cost per patient uh, with congestive heart failure at the end of their lives is approximately $41,000 in hospice, whereas if you are not enrolled in hospice, the cost is increased by almost $10,000. The more important piece of information for me is that these patients actually lived longer. So the median time until death in days was more than twice as long for patients who were in hospice. What you can see on the patients who uh, died with COPD is that, again, there's a significant difference in the cost of healthcare 
in these patients. But again, also, there's an increase in duration of life for these patients, although not quite as significant uh, as in the heart failure patient. So again, we have, we have a support system within medicine that can both help people live longer, potentially live with a better quality of life, and also potentially cost less money to the healthcare system. So how can we integrate palliative care and comprehensive disease management? So for heart failure, uh, I always like to start with trying to look at what are some of the so sources of suffering for patients who are living with heart failure. Dyspnea, pain, edema, fatigue, these are some of the more common physical uh, symptoms that uh, patients suffer from. Pain is, is very much a part of this disease process, even if they have non-ischemic heart disease. Uh, depression, social isolation. Uh, difficulty navigating the healthcare system is a major source of uh, suffering and challenge for a lot of our patients. I think the feeling of uncertainty regarding their prognosis and their longevity and often our inability to uh, discuss that comfortably. For many people, their loss of their role and their identity within their family and community can be a major source of suffering for the heart failure patient. So let's look at some of these individual symptoms. Uh, I like the idea of the stepwise approach to dyspnea, uh, and this applies to both heart failure and, as we'll see a little bit later, the approach to chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So on step one, we have a lot of the therapies that we are very often very comfortable with or at least very well versed in. So when you're talking about dyspnea related to heart failure, we're talking about optimizing a lot of our conventional therapies, things such as ACE inhibitors, diuretics, beta blockers really working on to making sure that people are getting the most out of neurohormonal modulation. In some cases, this can also mean advanced cardiac therapies such as transplantation and mechanical circulatory support. As patients continue to progress and their dyspnea continues to worsen, then there are other uh, evidence-based adjunctive therapies, and in this case, we are talking about uh, long-acting opioids. Uh, these can help patients with air hunger uh, be more comfortable as uh, they experience dyspnea. As you continue to walk up the step of dyspnea and heart failure, we now start to get into some of our more palliative approaches. Uh, up titration of their opioids, the addition of benzodiazepines, and for some patients, uh, infusion of IV inotropes. Um, this can be uh, both delivered in the hospital and in some cases, patients are able to be discharged to home on 24-hour day infusions of inotropic therapy. So this is a way to sort of approach dyspnea and heart failure, starting with some of the more common and um, conventional treatments and trying to expand upon really focusing on quality of patients' lives and relief of uh, symptoms. Depression is a significant problem for patients with cardiovascular disease. We know that about one in five patients with heart failure meet criteria for having a major depressive disorder, and an even greater number report some depressive symptoms. These depressive symptoms can often be correlated with decreased quality of life, increased pain, and worsening clinical outcomes. There's really been only one clinical trial looking at depression uh, and heart failure, and this was the SAD Heart CHF trial where they looked at uh, sertraline versus placebo for approximately 12 weeks and did not find a clinical benefit. However, this was a very short trial, and the dosing that they used in this patient population was lower than the usual. Despite the limited data, SSRIs are considered uh, standard of care for depression in a heart failure patient. I would also argue that as palliative care gets involved in the care of these patients, this may be one of the areas that palliative care has a really major impact on. By having patients uh, able to more easily interact with their environment, with their support systems, having the psychosocial and spiritual support, this can often change the experience of depression for a number of patients. Uh, pain is actually a major problem for patients with heart failure. As I said, it doesn't end up being limited to just patients who have angina and ischemic heart disease. About 67% of all heart failure patients will endorse the complaint of pain. As you increase the severity of your disease, so your New York Heart Association class worsens, uh, you will see that there's an increasing prevalence of pain. Uh, for patients who have class 3, 
symptoms. They often 69% of them have complaints of pain. For patients who become truly end stage at class four, 89% of them will endorse some complaint of pain. And it's likely a combination of heart failures when it, as well as some of their underlying comorbidities. In one trial, the PAIN-HF trial, which was involving uh, pain assessment, the incidence and the nature of pain and heart failure, uh, they looked at some of the associated comorbidities that made you more likely to be experiencing pain, and that included things such as degenerative joint disease, depression, anxiety, as well as chronic low back pain. Uh, the opiate use of patients with advanced heart failure is only about 22%, whereas in end-stage cancer patients, use of opiates is as much as 50% of this patient population. So uh, pain tends to be undertreated in the heart failure population and is another area that palliative medicine may be able to help improve the quality of life of end-stage heart failure patients. So while you may actually be able to look at this in more detail uh, as you're looking at it online, this slide is actually not meant for you to be able to read each individual piece of information. What this actually is meant to show is that palliative medicine and palliative principles can be incorporated at all levels of heart failure disease. So in the early phases when patients are New York Heart Association class 1, 2, and even early 3, um, when they're initially diagnosed and treatment is, is initiated, yes, we are focusing on some of the standards of care of initiating medications such as ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, diuretics, trying to understand the etiology of their heart failure. But even early on, patients' uh, preferences for things like advanced directives, CPR, getting into place durable power of attorney for healthcare decisions, um, providing good communication and education and a lot of good supportive care and coping with the fact that they now have a diagnosis which carries a high symptom burden and for most people will contribute to their death at some point in time. Um, very often when patients are fairly early in the course of their disease, a lot of these issues go undiscussed between their care providers, their families, and themselves. As people progress through their spectrum of heart failure, so they start to get to phase two and phase three where they become increasingly symptomatic with marked decreases in their functional status, increases in hospitalization, uh, consideration for things such as mechanical circulatory support, as transplant. Um, the role of palliative care continues uh, to increase. It involves making important decisions, such as whether or not you want to be considered for an advanced therapy, such as transplantation, and how that interplays with your goals of care. Uh, it helps to really elicit symptoms and quality of life, uh, and for many people can be a way to improve their own self-management. As patients move on to things like uh, transplantation, uh, ventricular assist devices, uh, very often palliative care physicians play a role in this process uh, as part of the informed decision-making process, uh, as part of the optimal management uh, as patients go through this. I think one of the things that often gets missed for patients who are very severely ill in cardiogenic shock, perhaps in the hospital for an extended period of time on temporary mechanical support, is that uh, very often these patients are suffering immensely. Um, both from physical symptoms, but often from the psychosocial symptoms, the social isolation of often being only able to stay in the hospital, in the ICU, with very limited contact. For many people, it's a, it's a significant change in their social role. And so palliative medicine has a role in trying to help people through this. The other place that palliative medicine really can uh, play an important role is in communication and discussion of things such as defibrillators uh, and mechanical support and how those things can be managed both through life as well as through death um, and how those different types of technologies uh, can be dealt with as the patient uh, progresses in their illness and actively dies um, and trying to understand how that interplays with their goals of care. So again, uh, some of the areas that, uh, that need to be addressed where palliative medicine really has an important role is initially in preparedness planning, so advanced care planning, patient education about the disease course and prognosis. I think this is probably, again, one of the more important things. Very often patients don't truly understand their diagnosis 
uh, and often may not understand that it is, in fact, a life-limiting diagnosis. Uh, as part of preparedness planning, understanding what the general experience of this disease is allows people to begin the process of making informed decisions. When we come to the idea of device-based treatment for heart failure, then uh, palliative medicine uh, and the palliative principles can be incorporated as we have careful discussions of risks and benefits of different devices, discussions of some of the alternatives, including actually not having a device implanted based on your goals of care and uh, what you find acceptable. A clarification that devices can always be deactivated later. Uh, again, this, this tends to be one of the details that patients either don't hear from their practitioners or are often so overwhelmed with what is happening to them, uh, it doesn't truly get processed. Advanced care planning, as people are being considered for uh, devices, this is a really good opportunity to reconnect with your patient regarding who their surrogate decision makers are, whether or not patients have talked to their decision makers about possible complications, unacceptable states, of living that would make them want their devices either not implanted or potentially deactivated. Encouraging patients to have this conversation early on when they are uh, able to be active participants in that conversation is often uh, a very important part of this. Symptom management and heart failure. Uh, I think this is again one of the places that palliative medicine and hospice really have had a significant impact on heart failure and I think it's in part why uh, patients tend to live longer when they're on hospice. Uh, they get very good symptom assessment. There's a lot of times attention given to often overlooked symptoms. Uh, very often people are actually going into the home to see patients, to do their assessments, and so there's a better understanding of a patient's living environment, what their real barriers are, what their strengths are. There's an understanding of the medical management of heart failure as a palliative treatment. The reality is, is that the vast majority of treatments for heart failure, while often may be aimed at trying to prolong life, almost all of them are aimed at relieving suffering and improving quality of life. It is also very useful to have somebody helping with collaboration between different disciplines to really try to maximize the benefits of our treatments and try to reduce some of the harm. Finally, as we are looking at patients who are at end of life with heart failure and are considering hospice care, uh, this can be a good way to incorporate both life prolonging and palliative therapies. There's an understanding of the optimal heart failure medications really as appropriate end of life care. We know that for many patients with heart failure, continuing on their conventional therapies, uh, including their diuretics, their ACE inhibitors, or our other neurohormonal modulation is really critical for maintaining the best possible symptom control that you can have for these patients. Um, helping hospice agencies and heart failure specialists collaborate, that way we can uh, bridge different knowledge gaps on both sides and figure out what's really possible for this patient. Uh, managing the implantable devices, as we said, near the end of life, and doing things such as a spiritual assessment at the end of life to make sure that we are focusing on the total person. So this is just some of the ways that we can help patients with heart failure, sort of your traditional heart failure patient. But what about palliative care and some of the other advanced heart failure therapies? So we have been sort of touching upon things such as left ventricular assist devices, these devices can be implanted into patients for different reasons. In the top portion of the graph that you see here, these are patients who receive devices as bridge to transplant. So they are uh, placed to help people get safely to transplant to allow recovery of end organs before they get to transplant. Uh, the patients below are actually what we call destination therapy patients, meaning that the only advanced therapy available to them is their ventricular assist device, and that is actually the final destination. What we can see is, um, as we're looking at different patients with different symptoms, we see that early on patients are all experiencing uh, class four, class three symptoms. 
um, once they actually undergo placement of their ventricular assist device, you start to see that that shifts both on the bridge to transplant patients above as well as destination therapy patients below. So there becomes a portion of patients who are essentially asymptomatic, who develop uh, neurocard association class 1 symptoms for at least a period of time. At this point, we're looking at patients who are out six months for their therapies. Uh, for many people, the reason that you're not seeing any more data over here is that these patients have gone on to transplantation. Uh, for patients who are living with destination therapy, uh, even out as far as two years, you still see that there's a significant group of patients living with class 1 and class 2 symptoms, as opposed to over here at baseline where they were living with class 3 or class 4 symptoms. So again, we're improving patients' functional abilities, we're improving some of their quality of life. Another way to look at some of the quality of life data for heart failure patients is to look at the different questionnaires that have been developed to actually get at that. Uh, the Minnesota Living with Heart Failure Questionnaire as well as the Kansas City uh, Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire are both good ways that have been well validated at looking at this information. So again, looking at uh, in the top of all of these, the bridge to transplant patients, at the bottom looking at destination patients. Um, for the Minnesota Living with Heart Failure questionnaire, the lower your total score, the higher your quality of life. And what we see is that as patients get implanted with their device um, and continue to live, and this is out to six months here, uh, their quality of life improves. The Kansas City questionnaire, the scoring goes in the opposite direction. So the higher your score, the better your quality of life. And in both your bridge to transplant patients and destination patients, there is a significant improvement in overall quality of life measures. What about survival after patients have implantation of a left ventricular assist device, for example, as a destination therapy? Um, when we refer to the post-rematch era, we're talking about uh, the later generation uh, devices such as the HeartMate 2, uh, which is a non-pulsatile device um, that tends to be less uh, prone to mechanical uh, failures. So the number of patients that uh, tend to survive as destination therapy patients at one year is 56%, at two years can be up to 31%, at three years is still about 17%. I think the important thing to remember that these are destination patients and so you really have not changed their underlying heart problems and so for many of these people they continue to have worsening heart failure usually because their right heart is not well supported. But they are living a substantially longer period of time and with that, we also saw, as in previous slides, that their quality of life has gotten better. So they've bought both quality of life and quantity of life. But not every patient's experience of their destination mechanical support is going to be the same. So for many of people who are living with heart failure, they have this sort of uh, up and down uh, type of experience where they will perhaps get admitted to the hospital with a decompensation, get uh, re-optimized, maybe have an improvement in their quality of life, but it never seems to get back to the same level it was at previously. All of a sudden, people get down to a point where they are so sick from their heart failure that their quality of life is really starting to fall off. What we've looked at with some of this data is that these patients then move on to get a destination VAD and tend to follow one of three different pathways. Either A, in the blue, they uh, end up with challenges or complications during their perioperative period and end up dying uh, with a continuing progressive decrease in their quality of life. For some patients, their experience is that initially their quality of life improves, they may gain quantity of life, but that they again still continue to decline from their heart failure. What our goal really is, is to get people, as many people to see as we possibly can, where people enjoy a much better quality of life for a longer period of time, but again, ultimately realizing that this is their final destination and we haven't cured their heart disease, uh, they will move on eventually to have a decline in their quality of life and die from their heart disease. So it's important to keep that in mind and palliative medicine can really play an integral role in this because it accepts that we uh, are still going to have patients with significant burden of symptoms. The device itself can come with its own set of challenges um, and palliative medicine 
principles can really help to change that experience for a lot of people. So what are some of the benefits of early palliative medicine in people who are getting destination devices? So they can be applied early in the course of illness, as we were talking about before, in conjunction with other life-prolonging therapies. So frankly, even patients who are going to go on to uh, transplantation uh, may still benefit from having early interventions from palliative care in terms of having their other distressing symptoms addressed, their spiritual suffering addressed, uh, other psychological and social issues addressed, as well as providing support for the patient and the family. It can be very useful in helping to relieve pain and other distressing symptoms. It can enhance a patient's quality of life and really help to integrate psychosocial and spiritual aspects of patient care. It provides a support system to help patients live as actively as possible until they do die from their heart disease. And then again, provide help for caregivers and family members during that illness. Um, the challenges and the caregiver burdens that come with uh, mechanical support are uh, often underappreciated, and this can be a way to really support uh, families through this process. Um, again, it affirms life and regards death as a normal process. We're not trying to hasten or postpone death, but trying to do everything we can to uh, improve the quality of life that people uh, achieve when they have their mechanical support. Additionally, it can offer a pretty significant support system to help caregivers and families with their grieving as patients do die on devices and can often help with issues such as a device deactivation, how to do it uh, effectively uh, with the least amount of symptoms, uh, very much in the way that uh, compassion extubations are done so that people do not suffer as they go through device deactivation. Uh, there has actually even been some pilot work uh, looking at palliative care consultations in patients who are being considered for heart transplantation. Um, as part of the transplant selection process, uh, it is a multidisciplinary group that evaluates the patients, including cardiologists, surgeons, social workers, dietitians, nurses, psychiatrists. So it's a very well-rounded group of patients. And what they did at Cedars-Sinai is include a palliative care specialist as part of the transplant selection process. They evaluated 20 patients that were being uh, looked at for transplantation in 2009 and 2010. And some of the reasons that they had for palliative care consultation were for symptom management, so helping patients uh, cope with their heart failure and their symptoms as they waited for heart transplant, clarification of goals of therapy, uh, advanced care planning, often referrals for things like hospice or end-of-life care, uh, as this was only part of the evaluation process. What we saw is that there was an improved management of patients' pain and other symptoms such as dyspnea, insomnia, and anxiety. Uh, they also observed a decrease in opiate use in patients who had actually had the palliative care consultation. It was well received by patients and families. Uh, and Another important part is that the heart failure transplant team physicians really felt that the integration of palliative care was beneficial and that there was an improvement in the efficiency of the process. Palliative care integration assisted with a holistic approach to the management of patients and all of their needs. It addressed the spiritual and psychosocial needs of patients and facilitated appropriate consults. It also helped to manage the distress of waiting for a heart. The median wait time in the United States to heart transplant in 2008 was 168 days. In Iowa, the average wait time is about nine months. Uh, that period of time can be very challenging for a patient, um, and there are a lot of spiritual and psychosocial needs that could be addressed through the assistance of a palliative care consultant. So again, this is sort of some pilot and preliminary work, but it really does show that even with uh, such advanced treatments as mechanical support and heart transplant, there is a role for palliative medicine in comprehensive and well-rounded patient care. So I'd like to switch gears a little bit and look at patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So as we look at the management of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease throughout the whole disease course, uh, what we see is that uh, based on the severity of illness, we start with excluding other contributing causes, trying to treat other issues, and really starting to initiate and optimize what we know to be evidence-based treatment, uh, including things such as bronchodilators, 
uh, oxygen, uh, theophylline, uh, PDE4 inhibitors, so your traditional medical management. In addition, it also incorporates initiating and optimizing non-pharmacological therapies, things such as exercise, pursed breathing, walking aids, chest wall vibration, uh, neuromuscular stimulation. And then can go on to, as you're getting later in the course of the illness and into end of life, the addition of both short and long acting agents such as opioids and help to manage uh, the disease process. On this slide, I just would like to emphasize the complexity of the sensation of dyspnea um, and what makes it such a challenge for uh, practitioners to help treat it. The understanding that there are many different reasons for which people experience the sensation of dyspnea. It can be issues related to the effort that it takes to breathe and how that is perceived and then how that signal uh, is reacted to uh, within the central nervous system and the periphery. Um, things such as the experience of chest tightness and air hunger. Uh, there are a number of different afferent signals uh, that are involved in this that then lead back to uh, how dyspnea is perceived in the brain and how it is responded to uh, through other parts of the body. So this is a very complex issue and therefore often requires sort of a complex approach to trying to relieve some of these symptoms. So what are some of the common treatments for dyspnea and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease? So the best evidence uh, that we have is for things such as breathing training techniques and neuromuscular electrical stimulation of the lower extremities on patients who are bedbound. Other treatments with varying levels of evidence for impact uh, in dyspnea include things such as palliative oxygen, uh, long-acting and short-acting opioids, benzodiazepines, uh, Non-invasive ventilation, which uh, when combined with long-term oxygen therapy can improve patients' experience of dyspnea as well as their hypercapnia. Uh, different types of distraction and relaxation techniques, acupuncture, complementary therapies. All of these uh, have been looked at in different studies, some with varying degrees of support for their actual impact on dyspnea. So going back to what we were looking at earlier for heart failure, there is also a dyspnea ladder for COPD. Again, we start down at the bottom of the ladder, and on the bottom rung we have a lot of our traditional pharmacologic and exercise therapies, our evidence-based therapies uh, from the COPD guidelines, including long and short-acting bronchodilators, exercise training, supplemental oxygen. As people have persistent or increasing dyspnea, we have the addition of other uh, non-pharmacologic measures such as pulmonary rehabilitation, a different type of breathing techniques, relaxation techniques, pacing activities. For many patients that will help their dyspnea, but often it still persists and can increase over time. And at that point, we can start other palliative pharmacologic measures such as uh, opioids, uh, and potentially the addition of anxiolytics. So again, it's a multi-level approach and you build on the base and try to keep adding to try to uh, reach acceptable levels of symptoms for a patient. What about some of the other uh, limitations or symptoms that are seen in patients with chronic lung disease? Fatigue and functional limitation is a very important part of that experience for people. Um, pulmonary rehabilitation really is the key in managing both dyspnea and fatigue. Learning different types of energy conservation techniques uh, can also be very critical. Psychological and social management in COPD is also uh, an important consideration, although very often the data that we have supporting this is fairly weak. There has been some, uh, some studies looking at the use of antidepressants and anxiolytics in patients who have COPD. The data is relatively weak as to the utility of it, um, but it is still a fairly common part of our treatment plan. Uh, pulmonary rehab, things like cognitive behavioral therapy, progressive muscle relaxation, peer support, which can both come out of things such as pulmonary rehab and other groups as well as support for families of patients who are living with uh, chronic lung disease. So what would be some of the triggers for discussing end-of-life preferences in patients with COPD? 
Some of the more common things that are quoted in the literature include a significant reduction in the FEV1 of less than 30% of predicted values, patients who are dependent on oxygen, patients who are having recurrent hospitalizations for exacerbations of their COPD, uh, patients with other comorbidities such as left heart failure, uh, people who are losing weight or cachectic, decreasing functional status, increasing dependence on other caregivers, and uh, advanced age. Um, I would make the argument that while I was not easily able to find in the literature a table that went into the same detail as uh, Sarah Goodland's table did on how to incorporate palliative principles at different levels of heart failure, one could easily see how in a very similar way we could incorporate palliative principles throughout the experience of patients with COPD. Um, and that would include starting early, uh, conversations regarding advanced directives, prognosis, family support, uh, other types of social support. So there is certainly a role to start early and then continue to expand on it as people experience their disease. So let's stop for a second and just think about the actual taking time to talk about these issues and what are some of the barriers, what are some of the challenges. So when do we talk about things like goals of care, advanced directives, palliative care, including management of physical, spiritual, and psychological symptoms, as well as things such as hospice options. Who starts the conversation? I think this, for a lot of people, is a really major challenge, again, as care tends to get a bit more fractionated. Physicians can include, uh, depending on your disease process, obviously, heart failure physicians, general cardiologists, uh, electrophysiologists who are actually putting in devices and are in a really good position to have uh, important discussions about people's uh, goals of care and advanced directives. Uh, their internist and family medicine physician. The palliative care services also uh, for a lot of people where that conversation happens. It can involve nurses such as their case managers, inpatient nursing staff, uh, social workers, chaplains. So there are multiple different people who are able to start the conversation and continue it for patients. So what are some of the barriers to effective palliative care and supportive care in patients with chronic lung disease and heart failure? I think one of the one of the underrecognized issues is the amount of community awareness of heart failure and COPD in the sequelae. Cancer has been very well publicized in the media as a very public story in which death actually plays a very prominent role. For heart failure and COPD, that's not really the case. And so while many people hear the word cancer and uh, the concept of dying from cancer is often in their minds, patients don't have that same response to heart failure and COPD. Uh, there's also a lack of a lot of integrated care systems. These patients tend to be sick for a long period of time. Um, they may not have consistent care systems. Uh, they may become frequent utilizers of emergency departments and urgent uh, care centers, and therefore don't necessarily have integrated care throughout the course of their illness. Um, there's sometimes difficulties in timing and having the resources to address death and dying issues uh, for these patients, especially when their interaction with the healthcare system is only at times of acute exacerbations when they're often not at their sort of best ability to have these conversations. The evidence itself for heart failure and chronic lung disease for symptom management at the end of life has fairly limited evidence, although that is really beginning to change as this becomes an increasingly researched topic. The other challenge that I have found, um, both as, as a cardiologist and an advanced heart failure specialist, is that it is often a struggle to reconcile the goals of palliative care within our very highly technological and often uh, very changing therapies within the context of heart failure. Um, when you have such advanced therapies such as transplant and mechanical circulatory support, how to pull together palliative uh, concepts within that can often be a challenge for a lot of practitioners and as well for a lot of patients. So what makes the conversations hard for patients? Um, I think that one of the big challenges is that for a lot of patients when we start that type of a conversation, it may be an indicator to them that there's been a change in their illness trajectory and that things have somehow worsened.
Everybody responds to discussions about poor prognosis differently. It can be related to their personality, their social situation, what's their past experience with illness, what's their current disease burden, how limited are they by their disease, does it uh, really make sense for them within the context of their experience right now. For some people, it may actually be a relief for some patients to actually discuss this, but that they haven't actually known how to start the conversation with their healthcare provider. The other experience that I've had, um, more so in Iowa than in other places that I've practiced, is that for patients who are involved in uh, long-term care programs, such as a transplant program, long-term disease management programs, uh, there's a partnership that develops between patients and their practitioners. And I've certainly had the experience where patients feel like they're failing their care team by changing their goals of care and their goals of therapy. Uh, and so those, those things can really uh, play a role in how hard these conversations are for patients. On the other side of the coin, what makes it hard for us as providers to have these conversations? One of the big challenges is that prognostication is not an exact science. And so it's, it makes having these conversations and the timing of these conversations for some people a little bit more challenging. Um, there's a perception in a lot of providers that if they start talking about end-of-life issues or they start talking about uh, the burdens of disease and how we can help with those burdens, that they fear that they may be taking away hope from the patient and that patients may perceive that they're uh, being given up upon. It can be very time-consuming and that can be a challenge for a lot of people. We're not actually well-trained to have these types of discussions. Medical schools are changing now as, as our uh, residency training programs to incorporate palliative medicine and palliative principles, but um, that is still a relatively uh, new change in training and in practice. I think we need to take into consideration what personal values, beliefs, and attitudes uh, a practitioner has and how that can impact on their ability to have these types of conversations. For some people also, too, the fear that death is the equivalent of failure or inadequacy, that if a patient dies, that the practitioner has somehow failed the patient. So these can all be different reasons and uh, challenges that have to be overcome by different providers as they have these types of conversations. The challenges with prognostication are very interesting. So. Uh, I, I show this from an article written by uh, Scott Murray looking at different types of diseases and different patterns of uh, how we prognosticate. So in the top panel, what we see is uh, patients who uh, tend to have an incurable cancer. So they have onset of their disease and from a functional capacity actually do fairly well for quite some time until they actually have uh, sort of this rapid decline. It can be in some cases over a few years, but most often it's usually over a few months. And so for this, uh, palliative input is often available as pay people sort of make that turn. And it's a little bit more predictable for cancer. Given that hospice really grew out of uh, cancer care, it has been relatively easy at this point now to incorporate palliative medicine. The bigger challenge comes from other disease processes. So for people who have long-term chronic illnesses that have intermittent serious episodes. So in this case, I would include heart failure and chronic obstructive lung disease. So they have functional limitations, but they're doing okay for a while. And then they have hospital admissions for decompensation. Um, and this tends to be a bit more unpredictable as to when this is going to happen. But they get worse, and then with reoptimization, they improve. But very often, what happens is that they do not improve back to their previous baseline. And so you have this sort of general decline that is punctuated by these acute decompensations. The timing of this can be very different for different people, and that sometimes what ends up happening is that people can live for two, five, ten years with diagnosis of heart failure or COPD, and then all of a sudden uh, with one of their decompensations can die in the setting of that decompensation. And for many people that almost seems sudden when in fact it's really been going on for some time. Uh, another possible pattern that people will fall under are uh, the idea of prolonged dwindling. So patients who are dying uh, due to frailty and dementia tend to fall into this category, this sort of gradual um, dwindling over time. Uh, 
Uh, again, this can be quite variable, can last a long period of time, and can be punctuated by a lot of deficits in things like cognition, functional capacity. So because heart failure and COPD fall into this sort of middle category here, it's hard to predict when people are going to die and hard to give that information to people. And so often uh, we have a tendency to avoid these kinds of conversations. What we know from things such as the support study, which is a study to understand prognosis and resuscitation preferences for outcomes and risks of treatment. So this study looked at people dying from a number of different diseases. Looking just at the heart failure data, uh, we know that heart failure patients who were predicted in the study to survive greater than six months by physicians, 50% of those patients died within three days. On the other side of the coin, people that they thought were going to survive less than six months, 53% of them were alive at six months. So all this really goes back to is the fact that we're not very good at figuring out who's going to live and who's going to die from their disease. So really, effective planning demands having difficult conversations. So let's talk a little bit about how to communicate about prognosis, end-of-life care, advanced care planning in patients with heart failure or COPD. The biggest challenge, I think, is to plan for the bad news conversation ahead of time and think through the points that you need to address. Try to be simple, honest, and direct. Demystify the language. Uh, describe the chance of life and the chance of death with heart failure or with COPD. Try to normalize the uncertainty. I think this is the biggest challenge. We are uncomfortable with the fact that it's difficult to prognosticate. Uh, whenever I start conversations with my patients regarding these issues, I include the fact that I can't effectively necessarily prognosticate and tell people how long they have to live. And because of that, I want to make sure that we've addressed these things early on and frequently so that we can be sure to respect and honor people's wishes and goals. So first, we need to initiate these types of discussions about end-of-life care. Framing this discussion is an important part of care for all patients with COPD and heart failure, and I like to include that as part of my discussion. When I sit down with patients, both in hospital and in my clinic, I let them know ahead of time that these are conversations I have with all people who are diagnosed with heart failure or with COPD. I try to identify whether the patient or somebody close to them has been seriously ill before, um, whether or not they were or were not able to make their own decisions, and what kinds of techniques or what kinds of assistance did they use to help facilitate that discussion. Um, I like to try to also figure out who is their decision maker, their surrogate decision maker, and try to see if I can have that patient present for the discussion. I have often found that while people have elected who their surrogate decision maker is, they haven't always effectively communicated what their goals are. Um, as the surrogate decision maker, people are supposed to be able to make the decisions that you would make for yourself if you were able to. Trying to help patients understand that that is the goal of advanced care planning is a very important part of this so that their family members or their identified surrogate really can ask questions, can really understand what's important to them and what their goals are. Discussing prognosis is always a challenge, especially when prognosis is so uncertain. There is a technique called the ask-tell-ask, ask, where you ask a patient, first of all, are they willing to discuss prognosis? There are times when patients are not willing or able to do that. Giving people the opportunity to say yes, to say no, is an important part of this. Providing them with their prognosis and then asking them to confirm their understanding of it trying to use numeric expressions of risk when possible rather than qualitative statements, being very simple, very direct in your language. Um, I often try to frame prognosis as referring to a group of people rather than an individual. It makes it easier to take the data that we have and express it to patients. And again, be open and honest about the fact that we have uncertainty in our prognostication. For a lot of patients who have advanced heart failure and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, they've been very seriously ill before, may have lived through a code situation, and therefore when you sometimes come back to them to talk about end-of-life care or advanced care planning, they have sort of lived through the worst of it and often find it hard to believe that it's possible that there could be a time when they won't be able to be resuscitated. 
Finally, discussing some advanced care planning. I really like to frame this as hoping for the best and preparing for the worst. It helps to kind of address that idea that we're going to take people's hope away. I look at it as a way to help empower people and give them a little bit of control back in a situation where they often have very little control. I think that also focusing on the fact that just by having advanced care planning discussions, it's not going to change how we focus on uh, maximizing patient survival, that having this conversation means that we're going to do less for them. It's very important to discuss advanced directives if people have very strong opinions about the use of CPR, mechanical ventilation, and other treatments. The other time that I find especially to be very important is when people have not necessarily uh, filed uh, their designated power of attorney for health care decisions. And in fact, the person that they would elect to be their surrogate decision maker is not the default surrogate according to the local laws. This is a really important thing to address for people so that the right surrogate is making the decision for them when they're not able to. Uh, again, discussing a commitment to not abandoning a patient um, and really focusing on what health states would really be unacceptable to the patient, what would be worse than death, and trying to put some words to that so that people can ultimately help to make uh, good surrogate decisions. Um, this can also be for many people a time to raise issues about spirituality and religion that they think that their providers need or would want to be aware of. So one of the big overlooked steps that I find in this process is the communication between providers. As we again see different physicians, different providers in different places, who has this conversation and how that information uh, gets put into the medical record and seen in the future is very important. Uh, I think as a group trying to normalize conversations as part of your practice within your group. Uh, so that whether or not they are talking to you, one of your partners, another member of your practice, they understand that this is something that's important to you all as a group. Uh, we're going to talk about these issues throughout our relationships so that we can see if your goals change as you have changes in your life and your experience of your disease. It allows you to then talk about these things at various stages of the disease without automatically assuming that uh, their disease is progressive or that they are actively dying. Really a consistent location of documentation of these conversations in the electronic medical record or if uh, you're someplace where they use paper charts uh, in the university under the patient care coordination note and EPIC under code status is where we're currently trying to document our goals of care conversations as well as it being a place that it will be seen if people have had uh, documents such as living wills and durable powers of attorneys scanned into the computer. It's important to keep these notes current, briefly document changes in the plan so people who don't have a long-standing relationship with a patient have a place to start. Um, very often these conversations happen when patients are ill and not able to communicate at their best and knowing what the previous conversations are can be very, very helpful to uh, the next practitioner. So in conclusion, palliative care really is about patient-centered care, family-focused care, and creating a framework for delivery of care to patients with life-limiting diseases that have significant burden of symptoms. Really, to be most effective, it needs to be initiated early in the disease process and very often is paired with disease-modifying and curative strategies. Heart failure and COPD really have a significant cost both to patients, families, societies, and really palliative care offers many potential benefits to this patient population in changing that experience. Uh, palliative care can be uh, an integral part of chronic disease management, and it can often complement other advanced therapies such as mechanical support and transplantation. Really, at the end of the day, communication is challenging both for patients and providers, but we're developing tools and doing research to really improve the delivery of care. Um, and when this process works, it can truly change the experience of living and dying with chronic illness, both for patients, providers, and families. Thank you so much for your attention. I appreciate it.